Good morning, and welcome to On Target, a radio ministry of Village Bible Church in Hot Springs Village. We are located near the Coronado Center at 100 Ponderosa Way. Our Sunday morning service starts at 9.15 a.m. We hope you will enjoy and benefit from the sermon you will hear this morning. Now sit back and relax as you listen to a message by Senior Pastor Dr. Jason Lancaster. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. Look at it again. What does this mean? For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which He also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few... That is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. It's going to be heavy teaching, but let me start off by saying this. Life as a Christian, is full of suffering. There are a lot of forms of suffering. This week I read about the pain of eating alone when your spouse dies. Many people wrote into the New York Times explaining how it's been painful eating alone after the loss of their husband or wife. There's stories of the widower who's now cooking his wife's recipes to the stories of widows having to do the grocery shopping that her husband used to do. And just the stories of, of missing the evening rituals of eating together than, than cleaning up. You know, we think about, about marriage and coming together and living life together. And I know you know death is coming, but you don't factor it in. And when it comes, it can be so hard. And it's situations like these and others that cause us to grieve and groan. And it makes us realize we are not home yet. And until we're at home with the Lord, we suffer in many ways. And as we travel this road to heaven, it is a road marked with suffering. Suffering on our way home is not a detour. The road that we travel to heaven until we're finally home with the Lord will be a road marked with suffering. In a few weeks now, we're going to have an open house where I'm going to invite you over to my house to see my family and pet my cows and stuff. You're going to come over, and you'll notice if you've never been to my house that our roads are not paved. They are rocky, and they are bumpy, and we have this huge hill coming up to our house that has these huge dips in it. And, and I'm thinking, wow, in order for me to get home every day, I have to go through a rocky, bumpy road with huge dips. And it's the same way as we're following the Lord on the way to our home in heaven. It's going to be rocky. It's going to be bumpy. And at times there's going to be these huge dips. But it's not a detour, for suffering is the main path. It was the same for Jesus Christ. He traveled this road of suffering on this earth. And as we follow after him, we take up our cross and suffer as well. A staggering quote that has really gripped me. I've sent it to my kids and I've, I've thought about it several times. It's from Richard Gaffin and I want to share it with you. I'll read it slowly. Richard Gaffin says this, 
Until Christ returns, then all Christian existence continues to be suffering with Christ. We must recognize that as Christ's whole life was nothing but a sort of perpetual cross, so the Christian life in its entirety, not just certain parts, is to be a continual cross. We travel this road marked with suffering. And the Apostle Peter, he knew this road of suffering as he wrote this letter to a beleaguered church who were undergoing a variety of trials. And as we've been seeing week after week after week, Peter's been encouraging them to, to press on. Even when they faced opposition for their faith in Christ, they were to set apart Christ as Lord and continue to follow Him. And they were to look to Him. And as we look to Christ, we realize that He traveled the path of suffering to glory. And that's the point that Peter's trying to make here at the end of chapter 3. But get this. Suffering did not have the last word for Christ. Suffering did not have the last word for Peter's church. And suffering will not have the last word for us at VBC. And Peter explains in this three-part movement that we're going to see here is first that Christ suffered, Christ was raised, Christ was exalted. You can think of it this U-shaped hand motion that, that Christ suffered, Christ was raised, and Christ was exalted. And as we follow Jesus Christ, we as well suffer, and then eventually victory and eternal life is coming as we follow Him. Christ suffered. He was raised. He's exalted. Now here we go. We're jumping into the text. We've done, we've done our stretching and warm-up. I want you to keep your head down a lot today so you can see the text because we're going to keep referring to it. All right, here we go. 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is a great snapshot of the gospel, but don't separate it from the context. Because the context, we've been having a running start into this passage, and in the context, Peter has been encouraging the believers to press on in trials and opposition. Don't fear the opposition while at the same time, don't take revenge. What did he say last week? Set apart Christ as Lord. Give a defense of the gospel with gentleness respect and suffer for doing what is right and what is wrong. Now he connects what he just said to Christ and he says in verse 18, for Christ also died for sins. And as we suffer and we press on, we look to Christ who also suffered, but his suffering is distinct. Because when I suffer, it does not gain anyone eternal life. But Christ in his suffering on the cross gained us life eternal both now and forever. Nonetheless, the times that we suffer unjustly, that we look to Christ and we see the just for the unjust. So don't lose this context of suffering in the midst of these textual challenges. Now, the first part of verse 18 is pretty straightforward. It says, Jesus died for sins once for all. Keep in mind that Jesus died one time. His sacrifice was sufficient. It's not a repeated sacrifice that needed to be accomplished again in reality, and it's not a repeated sacrifice that needs to be accomplished again in our rituals, if you know what I'm talking about. One sacrifice was sufficient to save us from our sins because he was perfect. Substitutionary sacrifice that turned away the wrath of God for sinners. And if you notice, it says he was the just. 
who bore the wrath for the unjust. That's us. He was a sinless one dying in the place of sinners. And the reason why he died in the place of sinners, it was to bring us to God. Do you get that? Through his perfect life, substitutionary death, burial, resurrection, was to bring us to God. We are sinful. We look to the sinless one. We have access to a Holy Father through Jesus, and he brings us to God. And when I was studying this this week, my oldest daughter texted me, and she said something very similar. She says that Jesus will not present you, Jesus will not bring you to the Father hesitantly, reluctantly, casually, or passively, but he will bring you to the Father with great joy. So far, so good. Jesus brings us to the Father through his sacrifice. We're all clear so far. Nothing has been confusing in the text so far. We are good. Verse 18, in the middle there. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Okay, we know the first part here, having been put to death in the flesh. Okay, that's a reference to his death on the cross. But what does it mean to be made alive in the Spirit? This could mean that Jesus was killed on Friday, but he was alive in his spirit until his resurrection. Okay, well that, that's a true statement, but is that what it's saying? Another interpretation argues that Jesus was put to death on the cross, but made alive in the Spirit as a reference to the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. The New King James Version in 1 Peter 3.18 captures this. It says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And I think that's the right interpretation that it's saying here that Jesus was killed on the cross, and three days later, he was made alive by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Back to our text. Look at verses 19 and 20. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is 80 persons, were brought safely through the water. The timing is in dispute here. As some see this as Jesus' work between the cross on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday, that somehow this is his work on Saturday, where he died on Friday, made proclamation to the spirits on Saturday, and he rose from the dead on Sunday. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think we need to see it that way. I think the way that this can be understood is that Christ crucified on Friday rose again on Sunday by the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrected Christ went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Who are these spirits? Who is Jesus proclaiming to? Who are these spirits? Well, in the New Testament, when you look for the word spirits, it almost never, if ever, refers to human beings. It's not talking about human beings. Okay, let me just pull out a side here. I'll do, I'm just going to pull out a side. There is a traditional misunderstanding of this text. Okay, it goes something like this. Jesus died on Friday. And on Saturday, 
he went and he preached the gospel to this certain amount of people to give them a chance to be saved. And then on Sunday, he rose again from the dead. So on Saturday, he's preaching to these people. No! That's not what this text is saying. In fact, spirits in the New Testament does not refer to human beings. So who are the spirits? Well, they're fallen angels, or we would call them demons. These are evil spirits now in prison. And this idea of demons in prison comes from other verses in the Bible. Let me share some other verses with you. Maybe you never heard of demons being in prison. Well, here you go. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. So here is a depiction of angels who sinned, locked up in the chains of darkness until judgment. And there's another passage from the book of Jude. Jude, verse 6, says this, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. These are angels who rebelled and were subsequently bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. All right, so far so good. We're talking about fallen angels who were locked up in jail, right, in prison. Who are these demons that are locked up? Are all demons locked up? <laughs> no, you know they're not. You know that all spirits are not locked up and away in prison because many of them try to tempt us and, and torment us, right? But we are told, once again, verse 20, who these are. These are spirits that were disobedient during the time of Noah. Hmm. So these demons, during the time of Noah, I know a lot of you have studied about the ark, but during the time of Noah, there are these demons who are wrecking havoc on this earth among humans while God was patiently, as it says here, waiting during the construction of the ark. What exactly were these demons doing to wreak havoc on this earth during the time of the construction of the ark? You don't want me to tell you, do you? But I'm going to tell you. And those of you who already know, know what I'm going to say. These demons, during the time of the construction of the ark, the, reason, the way they were wreaking havoc is this. You're not going to believe this. I'm telling you, you're going to think I'm making this up. Genesis chapter 6. We're not going to read it. Don't read it now. Genesis chapter 6. You can read it later. Verses 1 through 4. You read the whole ark narrative. It's a difficult text to understand, but apparently, you ready for this? These fallen angels, demons, came down to the earth, had sex with women, and had children. I'm not making it up. That's what was going on. That the evil of this earth was so bad that it was ramped up that even demons abandoned their proper dwelling to spread wickedness. And it's these spirits and demons who were locked away. It says from our text today in verse 19, look at it again. Verse 19, we're told that Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So the resurrected Jesus makes proclamation to these spirits who are in prison. Well, what does he say to them? 
I, I don't know. And he's not giving them the gospel where they get a chance to be saved. No, he's not doing that. But the crucified, resurrected Jesus is probably proclaiming to them judgment and his victory over sin, Satan, and death. And I think that's the right understanding and the right interpretation because it fits with the context of verse 22. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 talks about Jesus. It says, Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. You get that? So Jesus right? He, he died, he rose again, and now he reigns victoriously over all, including the spiritual powers who are now in submission to him. These angels, authorities, and powers are all in submission to him, and they all fall into the category of spirits that we saw earlier. And all have been defeated, and all are in submission to him. And you may wonder, why are you bringing this up, Peter? He's bringing it up because of the good news of those in the church who are suffering now and facing opposition that Christ has won the victory. And one day, we will reign with Him. And they were to take that as an encouragement. Now, our interpretive difficulties are far from over, and I have got to get a drink of water because, oh boy, the next one is really challenging as well. I want you to look at verses 20 and 21. I'm going to read it to you. Who were once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter now lays out a connection between the water of the ark and the water of baptism. Let's start with the days of Noah. Noah and his family, eight and all, were saved through water. The water was God's judgment against the world. And through the water, Noah's family was saved inside the ark. And I've even heard that the early church viewed the ark as a symbol of salvation. So instead of having a fish on the back of their car, they would have had an ark. There's no cars back then, but something like that. And notice in verse 21, Peter says, corresponding to that, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Or the, this water, another translation says, symbolizes baptism that now saves you. So the flood floodwaters during Noah's time symbolizes the baptismal waters. And just as those inside the ark were protected from the judgment of God, so those of us inside Christ are protected from the judgment of God. You get that? They're in the ark. They're protected from the judgment of God. We are in Christ. We're protected from the judgment of God. I was trying to explain this to my kids this week during family worship. By the way, last night we had family worship. We had Jim and Ruth Neal over. And when we have guests over who can sing, they always have to pick a song to sing. And Jim Neal did a great job of singing our family worship song last night. Well done. But back to the point, during this week, I was trying to teach my kids this idea that when they see in the New Testament the phrase, in Christ, right? You've seen that phrase tons of times, in Christ. Or you see the phrase, with Christ. When you hear or see that phrase, think of Noah, 
and how Noah and his family were in the ark and they were protected from the judgment of God, so all those in Christ are protected from the judgment of God. It's a great symbolism there. But what about these baptismal waters? Why is he mentioning these baptismal waters? Well, the reason why is because baptism is a picture of death. Did you know that baptism is an outward physical depiction of what has happened inwardly? Think about it. Those in Christ are plunged under the waters of judgment, right? And they die in Christ. Will those who are plunged under the water survive the deluge of judgment? Will they survive? And the answer is yes. Because as Christ rose again, so those in him rise to newness of life. It says this in the book of Romans. Romans 6, verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And that's what it says at the very end of verse 21 when it talks about Jesus. That we are saved, as it says there, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That we survived the judgment in Christ and we are saved through the resurrection. But get this. I know you may have heard this before. But it's not the act of baptism that saves you. I know there's some churches that think that the act of baptism is salvific in itself, but that's not what Peter is getting at. It's not the act of baptism that saves you. Because look at verse 21 again. Right there in the middle, he says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. So the act of baptism itself can't remove dirt. It's not talking about literal dirt. It's talking about the moral stain of sin. Baptism itself, the act, doesn't get rid of sin. But what it does is it's a pledge or an appeal of a good conscience towards God. So when it talks about baptism saving you, it saves you in the sense that is an outward sign of what has happened inwardly as you have put your faith in Christ, and now it's, there's this pledge or an appeal to forgive your sins and a clear conscience before God. And you have a clear conscience because you have believed in the death and the resurrection of Jesus as sufficient to save you from the wrath of God. Your sins are forgiven and no condemnation remains. We see this from the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Just as those who were in the ark were saved, so those of us in Christ are saved. We plunge under the waters of judgment and we come up in the resurrection and walk a new life. You see, some people make too much of baptism and say the act alone saves you, but the act does not save you. But then there are other people who make too little of baptism and they just kind of brush it off and they, they overlook the marvelous command in the New Testament that says, believe and be baptized. Did you know the New Testament church during that time, it was unheard of to have an unbaptized believer. I'm going to say it again. The idea of an unbaptized believer in the early church just wouldn't make sense. 
believe and be baptized. Chuck Swindoll says, just as Christ proclaimed his triumph over sin and death through his own suffering and death on the Christ, believers proclaim their triumph over sin and death through water baptism. I'm going to say it again. Just as Christ proclaimed his triumph over sin and death through his own suffering and death on the cross, believers proclaim their triumph over sin and death through water baptism. At the very beginning, I mentioned that through this heavy teaching, there would be a very surprising action point. An action point that could be one of the highlights of your life. And I'm about to tell you that action point right now. You have not been baptized as a believer. Let me encourage you, exhort you as strongly as I can to be baptized as a believer, to make your proclamation. This past year, we have baptized 29 people who have made their proclamation that they have survived the judgment and the wrath of God in Christ, and they now walk in newness of life, and we all saw it. And if you've not been baptized as a believer, let me encourage you to be baptized. We have a baptismal in this room. Can you find it? It's that square rectangle thing right there. Behind that is a baptismal where there's water. And we are going to have a baptism in here, in the sanctuary, on December 8th. And if you have not been baptized, let me encourage you to obey. And it could be one of the greatest highlights of your life. And if you want to talk more about this, mark on your communication card, that thing in your bulletin, just mark it down, that you want to learn more about baptism and possibly be baptized. If you've never been baptized as a believer, I keep saying as a believer, believer's baptism, a decision you have made to put your faith in Christ and to be baptized, let us know. And we want to walk you through that. And on December 8th, you could be baptized and we can rejoice with you. Well, good job hanging in there through this tough passage. But I keep saying, don't forget the main point. Suffering is not a detour on the way to the glory but the main road. Suffering is not a detour on the way to glory, but the main road. It was true for Christ and it's true for all of us. And in a sense, all of us are like Noah. We're beat down for a while, but judgment and deliverance are coming. And you may wonder, what is the point of suffering? And I want to give you some, some things to think about on what is the point of suffering. You may be wondering, why are you going through what you're going through? And I want to end by sharing a few things from John J. Murray in A Frowning Providence. And he talks about what are God's designs in suffering. Let me share these eight with you. God's designs in suffering. Number one, test our faith. Expose our sin. Build our character. Bring us to know God better. Five, produce fruit in our lives. Six, prepare us for usefulness. Lead us to make God our all. Prepare us for glory. Maybe one on this list is really resonating with you that God has taken you through a season of trial and suffering and you can see the manifestations of the goodness that is emerging through these trials. Maybe he's producing new fruit in your life. Maybe he's leading you to make God your all. Maybe He is preparing you for glory to get your, your mind, your heart so set on glory even through these trials. There can be a lot of things that God is doing in each of us through this time of suffering. But I love this beautiful quote from John MacArthur. He says this, The point of application 
to Peter's readers is that suffering can be the context for one's greatest triumph as seen in the example of the Lord Jesus. You ever thought about that? That your suffering can be one of the contexts of one of your greatest triumphs. Can we go back to that list of eight? Go back to the slide before. Suffering can be the context for one of your greatest triumphs. Maybe God has produced suffering in your life to prepare you for usefulness. Maybe He's brought it into your life to wake you up and expose sin. Maybe He's doing it as a test of faith. Who knows what He's doing in your life? Maybe you know far better than I do. But maybe rather than, than hating the suffering so much, you want to pull back and say, maybe God is doing something in, right now in this context that is going to lead, even in the midst of suffering, to one of my greatest triumphs. And my brothers and sisters, you need to know this. Suffering is not the end, and suffering does not get the last word, and suffering has an expiration date, and we will soon be done with this. And how do we know that? We look to Jesus Christ. Crucified, yes. Buried, yes. But resurrected and exalted. And all of us in Christ, though we suffer now, I guarantee you, if we're in Christ, victory is coming. We hope you enjoyed this message. It was preached recently at Village Bible Church. You can hear this message or let others know about it by visiting our website at vbchsv.org or call us at 922-0404. Meanwhile, have a blessed day as you walk along the way guided by God's Word.